Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life to Your Term show, I am pumped that Nick and I got the chance to sit down with Greg Foss. Greg has 27 years experience trading high yield credit. He has a lifetime of experience, it seems to me, in the banking and finance sector. And we sat down and went through everything from the Bloomberg terminal all the way forward to Bitcoin. And the reason I got so excited talking to Greg, it's very rare to get someone to sit down who has his type of experience and share what they are thinking and feeling about the finance industry, the monetary system, and Canada going forward. At the very end of this podcast, we talk about some of the funds that he's involved in that are super interesting, especially if you're looking to get into something like Bitcoin inside your RRSP. He explains some of that. And some of the stuff that he's involved in with energy and power just kind of blew me away. Just a really fascinating guy. So happy that he decided to sit down with us. We actually stumbled upon each other on Twitter, kind of reached out to him and said, hey, you're chatting about some of the stuff that we're definitely interested in. Do you want to come on to our podcast? And he kind of came on not really knowing who we were or what we were about. So just really grateful that he did. So Greg, if you're listening, thank you so much for that. And listen, if you are listening to this and want to surround yourself with people who are taking action, you can always check out the Rockstar Inner Circle membership and what we are up to here at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. It's a membership that we've been, can't speak here. It's a membership that we've been running for 13 years now. You can see all the benefits of how we map it out at www.rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. We run classes. They're all virtual right now, but we have ongoing classes for Rockstar Inner Circle members. You're mapped directly to somebody here at the Rockstar team to help you um, achieve your real estate investing goals. We have a monthly newsletter that we put out full of content on inflation and deflation and gold and Bitcoin and economic updates and real estate pockets. And we share stories inside that newsletter of Canadian investors who are buying properties all around the GTA and Golden Horseshoe and the strategies that they're using today to create cash flow. So that's probably the most important thing that we share inside that monthly newsletter. All the different rockstar investors that are taking action, we share every month the different strategies that we're using so that we can all learn from each other in real time. So it's kind of a feedback loop where uh, if an investor is investing out in Peterborough, you may not know them, but you're out in Kitchener and you can kind of learn from them. So the idea is that it's a really a central place where we can share investing strategies, real estate information in real time that's working right here in the GTA and the Golden Horseshoe. So if you want to check out all the benefits of becoming a Rockstar Inner Circle member, go to www.rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. And with that, let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Nick, I'm just checking. We are live. Can you hear me? Loud okay? and oh, clear. Okay, great. We're here with Greg Foss. Uh, Greg, what is the background of the last name Foss? It's a uh, very interesting. Uh, thank you. I'm a Canadian, third generation Canadian, but the last name actually is Norwegian. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Third generation Canadian. Mm-hmm. Of oh, all the podcasts we do, that, we don't have many third generation Canadians. Out of all the people I know, I don't know I don't any know. third Canadian. Third so, generation you're like Canadians. Canadian, you're practically Canadian royalty. Well, thank you. Um, I have a great photo of my granddad in World War One that I actually did put on uh, Twitter. He's uh, against, he's right next to his uh, World War One flying machine. It's called a uh, Sopwith Camel. And uh, you wouldn't believe, again, this is, I'm, I'm a technological uh neophyte but the the advances in air, in aeronautical engineering just from 1917 to, to today uh just looking at that picture I'll, I'll i'll show it to you i have a picture on my phone afterwards but uh yeah so he my granddad uh born in sherbrooke quebec and uh we're montrealers and my family's just recently or not recently but we moved to toronto for uh, bay street Got it. Okay. And everyone listening to this knows we're hardcore Leafs fans. And if you're listening, just, just know that we've already had the Habs discussion with Greg before we started recording and we'll just leave, well, we're going to leave it at that. No, I'll I'll add that I have two young, uh, two middle-aged boys right now and, uh, they love the Leafs as well. So absolutely go Habs and go uh, buds. Yeah. Cool. Um, Greg, how can so many people like the Leafs? It's a painful experience. It's in your your soul. It's, it's part of who you are. It's part of your identity. Like you like to suffer every year. I say, I'm not going to watch anymore than I watch. Damn it. So, can't pull myself away. It's it's beautiful because a lot of the... So I mentioned my oldest boy played some OHL hockey and uh, 
you know, played on the same teams as uh, a lot of the kids we see in the NHL now, but uh, grew up playing against Mitch Marner and uh, Connor McDavid. And, you know, you knew at a young age those kids were awesome, awesome, and it's really good to see uh, Mitch uh, Marner doing as well as he is with the Leafs, and no one was ever going to question what uh, Connor McDavid could do, so... Yeah, that's freaky that you say that because my son stopped playing now. He's 18, and I, I sometimes wonder because some of his class is now getting drafted and stuff. I'm like, am I going to see one of these boys running around in the NHL at some point? It's so. exciting stuff. You know, you're, you, it's exciting for the kids. It's exciting for the family, but also very emotional. So Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, Greg, you're, you were going to talk about the Bloomberg Terminal, which I don't know a lot about, but I'm just interested. And we'll get into your background in a bit, so we're going to be all over the place. I apologize. No. But can you talk about that with your past? Why was the Bloomberg Terminal when it came to bond trading like this big breakthrough that's so, how that's how little we know good okay so um i started in the business uh, 30 years ago and um at that time uh personal computers weren't even in in uh that high use um a lot of the old salesmen actually on bond desks so i i've spent 27 years as a uh, credit trader um a lot of the salesmen on the bond desk who were old guys, when I got into the business, I was 25. These guys were, some of them, 45, 50 years old. So they, they had their own uh, uh, basically basic habits. And you had something called a bond book, which was a Bible that calculated uh, accrued interest and uh, principal on a, uh, on a bond. So as opposed to your personal computer calculating it for you, uh, they would have to take out this phone book and every time a ticket was written, they'd have to fill in the, uh, in the appropriate, uh, uh, accrued interest and, uh, and, uh, total value of the bond trade they, they just done. So the Bloomberg terminal itself was designed by, uh, Mayor Bloomberg. Um, and he worked for Merrill Lynch and it was a terminal primarily for fixed income, uh, income, uh, professionals that took all the calculations such as duration of a bond, convexity of a bond, accrued interest, uh, basically price sensitivity, and put it on a screen for you. And coupled that with other analytics that just at that point were not available. And news, like the latest headlines coming in? or So, no? so absolutely. So, but that is, it, it's, it's morphed into that right now, but that was a secondary function that, you know, you okay, had I other things. I thought that was the primary no, function. No, they had, you had like Reuters information service that provided that already. Um, uh, other news services provided the same news feeds that Bloomberg had. What Bloomberg actually did though is, is, uh, uh, did a quick uh, messaging feature, much like on um, uh, the BlackBerry, where you could message somebody's individual terminal. So they actually incorporated this as a as a service into their into their platform. But the 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 Damn, real so platform. He was a way. Ahead. Oh, he was he. The guy was a, a, a genius, and obviously the company is uh, is very very valuable. Uh, he split off from Merrill Lynch and took the pri uh, took the company himself uh, and said, "This is it. I want to run with this platform that I've developed." Again, it's it's primarily to use fixed income uh, analytics that that are very difficult. It's uh, you know lots of derivatives and or you know second uh, second derivatives and uh, calculations like that that aren't easy to do. Um, and you know stock stock charts and all these other things which are much more generic. Those are incorporated on the terminal as well. Think about the speed in the past, because so I grew up, and um, I don't know when I was I I was still in high school. Definitely when they, we had the first personal computer with the internet. We had one before that, but you know, slow dial-up modem. But by the time I entered any workforce, like you know, outside of my part-time jobs, I was in school. High-speed internet was kind of pretty prevalent in the Toronto area with with cable modems or DSL. So you know, I grew up at this time when everything was already speeding up, and it's gotten much faster since then. But, you know, I just, look, I think back and I'm like, yeah, man, to the hear speed, that story. Yeah, the speed at which things were done back then was as fast as possible. And that's why, you know, you needed that. But but compared to the way things are done now, it's just crazy. Well, I the mean, MLS, I, mean, I, think the it, MLS ways, I think it's better actually when it was done like that. Well, the, even the MLS system in real estate was a book. Yeah, it was a book. Was it right. was a yeah. book. You would go from brokerage yeah. to brokerage. So for our generation to hear that, you're like, you're kidding me? Yeah. You can't just go online and pull some comparables now? Like you went to different yeah, brokerages well, to see what they had to, for sale? It, it's changed a lot of businesses um, everywhere. The technology, as I said to you guys uh, 
earlier, there's more technology and more computing power in our iPhone than uh, was used to put the first uh, man on the moon. So, and, and, which is insane. Mm-hmm. But when I when you brought up Bloomberg and the bond, you know, and and using it in the bond market and that kind of thing then you were relating it or you said Bitcoin was reminding you of that. Why, why does it remind you of that? What is it? Is you just think it's this other technology, a, a big advancement again? So a hundred percent. I'm an engineer by training. Um, the uh, one screen that sold me on uh, Bitcoin and the blockchain was uh, visualizing the blockchain in action. And I'm probably certain that perhaps you two guys haven't even seen it. I'd be happy to show you after this, but for the listeners, it's called tradeblock.com and it is the coolest, uh, it is the coolest, uh, uh, visualization of the blockchain in action. Um, and it shows basically the mempool. It shows the transactions taking place. Uh, it shows who the miner was for the Bitcoin block when the last block was mined. Again, very visual, but shows the blockchain. And as everyone knows, Bitcoin was the first blockchain. And in my opinion, probably is the only truly important blockchain that there is. So uh, you can see it on tradeblock.com. Go to, I can't see what you guys are looking at right now, but go to the, the markets part. It'll say markets and then go on Bitcoin. And uh, you, you can see the blockchain in action on tradeblock.com. Nick's trying to pull it up, but instead we're seeing some apps on the screen. We'll, well just leave it. Well, I have it up here, but uh, yeah, I have the little demo. It looks like up here. I have not seen this. this, this right, is this right here. That's it. hundred percent. You have it right there, Nick. Wow. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm quicker. So than look Tom, at, look Tom's at, still trying, look trying the to bottom. figure it out. So look no, in the bottom. Broke, you broke my TV. That's why I can't. So you see in the bottom, you'll see transactions taking place all over the world right now. Those are Bitcoin transactions that will go, you see the, the flashing numbers. Those are transactions. That, so you'll see, you know, a $50 transaction. You'll see a $200,000 transaction. Okay, you'll so see. the technology aside, why is that fascinating to you? Because I mean, someone to some younger people are going to see, think that's just really like, wow. Yeah, that's technology. Of course I can okay. see it. It looks like a cpu running or just you know so why excellent question yeah what's the comparison uh when i take my bitcoin wallet and i transfer you money uh which is the second coolest thing that i've seen about bitcoin with not no intermediary person to person uh trans um transaction it will appear on that screen you're not going to be able to see it obviously but you know that that's the transaction that takes place so that it is recorded on the on the ledger uh, forever in time, and so uh, transferring money to uh, an individual, I just transferred money to an individual in Australia. I've never met him. Um, he happened to be a uh, well, long story, but it, you know, I transferred some Bitcoin to Australia. In it took less than ten minutes. If you had tried to do the same thing at a bank. Uh, it, it we do that good. when we when we bought our property in Croatia. So we we bought a property on the Adriatic coast there. Oh, um, our father's from Croatia, so that's why. And and to transfer the money over, and we had to do multiple installments. Yeah, it, it, the, the I, I was in shock that that was the most efficient way. I mean, I, I'd rather get the the flipping cash in a suitcase and just fly over in one shot. Like it, it's more painful going to the bank and using the Swift system to get it over there. Guys, think about think about. Um, Again, I'd never met this individual. I've never seen a picture of him. He actually was doing a fundraise for uh, some block uh, Bitcoin developers. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I didn't need a name. I just needed an address and it was seamless and frictionless. And and you didn't have to beg the bank. I feel like when I'm wiring money, mm-hmm. I, even if it's our own money, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm begging the bank on a reason why I'm sending the money. I feel like why this is my, and, and now maybe I'm getting too emotional over it, but I'm like, man, this is my, I've paid tax on this money. I've put the money in your institution and now I have to beg the money, uh, beg the money, beg the bank oh, yeah. to do something like, with well, my own and, money. And the worst part is, and oh, no, and then the worst part is, and what are you doing with the money? Or yeah. what, and, and basically why are you sending the money? And, and uh, you know, my traditional answer is, well, because they need it, you know, like uh, stay out of my business, yeah. the, uh, you know, but no, why are you transferring the money? Well, because they need it, you know, whether it's investing in a small company or or that and you ever w- line up a wire transfer. So. So to you, it's the equivalent of the kind of advancement from looking at the bond books to the Bloomberg terminal. This is another leap. This is the um, re- separation of uh, of money and state. Uh, it is the ability to transfer money anywhere you want in the world to an address or a QR code on your own terms, which means you don't have to answer to anyone. But you're a finance guy. To me, someone with your background, 
and I think the fine, you know, I think Bay Street, I think Wall Street benefits a lot from the current system. Um, you're, you're, I'm surprised that someone like you with your background saying, huh, you know what, there's a different way or, or there's value in something like a hard money like Bitcoin. So um, I'm not certain if I shared this story with you. And there's going to be certain, um, I want to go through it for the listeners, but um, there's so many people that don't understand how banking actually works. So, so let me be very clear. Uh, Bay Street and Wall Street have been very good to me. Uh, I'm not trying to, uh, to diss anybody in, in the business. Capital markets and capitalism is what makes the world go round. Um, but capitalism is built on a banking, um, on the basis of uh, a lot of very tenuous uh relationships in 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 the industry including if most people as as henry ford said if most people understood how the banking system truly worked they would take their money out of the banking system and my first experience coming back from school i went to uh, i went to school in the u.s and i came back to canada to work at the head office of uh, the royal bank of canada did i talk to you about this story no no so this one's going to be really good um but i also <laughs> i also need to, as soon as to, you to use the word tenuous i'm well, like okay well, I, I need to i need to uh, caution v, uh, listeners out there that this is true um and this is not to scare anybody i just want to share this story because it's uh it's so important about my first experience, uh, basically to uh, to the finance business in Canada. Okay, so um, by the way, how how long is this? Uh, We're good. We're gonna stop probably around the hour mark, perfect. but we have no set time. All right. You All right. Know. So so here here's how it goes, guys, um, ladies and and guys. Um, so I come back to Canada and I get a job at the head office of the Royal Bank of Canada in Montreal. It was uh, when Royal Bank had a split office, uh, split head office, and uh, again, this is not to uh, to take a jab at the Royal Bank or anything like that. But um, I, uh, I was working for the CFO, which pretty cool job. Um, and it was in a, in a division called the Financial Policy and Strategy Group. And I was really proud to, uh, to get that job. I was working with some very, very smart people. Um, one of my first projects was to work on uh, the LDC debt portfolio. LDC stands for Lesser Developed Country. Um, and... Uh, Royal Bank had about $4 billion of uh, LDC debt on their books. Uh, in the 1988 uh, era, um, there was a lot of petrodollars flowing around the world and uh, banks turned out uh, to lend to countries. We don't typically do it anymore. Banks typically don't do it anymore. But at the time, uh, Royal Bank had accumulated about $4 billion of uh, LDC debt. Um, and it's not a big number in today's numbers, but back in the, in the late eighties, that's a huge number. And, uh, they had about a uh, billion dollars of Mexican, uh, debt, a billion dollars of Brazilian debt. And then the other 2 billion was spread amongst, uh, other South American countries and then other lesser developed countries like Philippines, uh, Vietnam, whatsoever. So my project was going to be um, Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady had just uh, announced in the U.S. that uh, they were doing a Brady plan for the Mexican exposure. So my job was to price a billion dollars of, of bank debt and choose between various options that the Brady plan was offering and determine for the bank what the best uh, uh, way forward was. Uh, the banking system was globally was under pressure from all this debt that had uh, traded down from a hundred cents on the dollar to about twenty five cents on the dollar was the average uh, the average price. So I said, well, before I get into the Brady plan, I, sh I should just look at this whole portfolio. So we have four billion dollars, and it's trading uh, at twenty five cents on the dollar. Um, that's that's going to be a big hickey. Uh, we, we're, we're <laughs> I was, have, I'm having we're, a heart attack listening well, to, we're, to we're four billion to, trading so, at one billion. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. So what do you have to do? You have to say that's going to be a realized loss, right? So where does the loss come out of? Well, it comes out of shareholders' equity. So I say, well, let's uh, let's make sure that uh, oh, this is not good. Uh, we actually <laughs> have less than three billion dollars of shareholders' equity. So the largest bank in Canada was insolvent. And I had just gone to work there. And I have more stories about, you know, the, the inner workings, but I just, I, I took that 
There were people that were aware um, in power, and so was Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady, obviously. The North American banking system was in default, uh, not in default, it was insolvent. Now, they will skate their, themselves on site. Uh, one of the ways in doing, uh, of doing that was uh, transforming the debt into, uh, into a longer-term instrument, uh, perhaps increasing some fees on Instabank machines, chuckle, chuckle, uh, you know, increasing fees to consumers, whatever. But the point is the banking system regularly goes into insolvency and people have no clue that that's the case. So in 1980 business in the world, it's the best business in the world. Well, it is the best business because you're, well, you're, so let's, let's take a look at that statement. Um, you're risk free provided you can get bailed out by your own central bank. And the way that your own central bank bails you out is their ability to print money. So, I said 20 or you know 30 years ago I said this is the biggest you know scam. misunderstood yeah, yeah. I am not going to use scam because it's you <laughs> well, know Nick and I could do it, but yeah, yeah. No, but we, it might not be scam but it, but it's like like you were about to okay. say misunderstood system Correct. because people a don't bank, get it all. a bank is over 25 times levered so for every $100 of debt that or uh, for every $100 of loan they make they only really have 4 cent or 4 dollars rather of capital against that, of equity capital. And the other $96 is deposits, interbank deposits, subordinated debt. But if you do some really quick bond math, it's not surprising that in periods of spread widening, where, where credit spreads can widen 100 or 200 basis points at a time, if you had to mark to market your bank's book, like they're, a trading book, that 4% equity position is vaporized very quickly. So banks are regularly insolvent. It, this is look, well, earlier and this I know year, all this stuff, but I guess just hearing the first person story like this yeah, is kind yeah, of yeah, freaky. Yeah, it is. But earlier this year, in the end of March when the pandemic hit, there was, you know, and the financial markets collapsed and there was a lot of finance, uh, uh, you know, monetary kind of uncertainty around before they launched the stimulus. And then they launched more stimulus faster than they ever had before it was because of just this well right? so and it's there's not a bigger thing spoken so about. nick it's it's perfect you know it's bigger than that it's not about announcing the stimulus it's the fact that the fed and the central banks are buying credit full stop yeah, yeah. they're buying credit to defend the banking system because again the banks on in bond math and anyone that wants to call in i'd be happy to walk you through the bond math if you have spreads that widen by 200 basis points very quickly, you on a mark-to-market basis lose over six or seven dollars on a hundred dollars, which means your equity position effectively gets vaporized. Because they only are holding about four dollars in equity in your example Bingo. for every hundred dollars that's Bingo. out in the market. Bingo. And some banks are far more levered than that. The European banks are. Uh, you know, I'm only talking about on balance sheet assets. I'm not uh, including off balance sheet exposures. So uh, again, uh, bringing so you, it back to a, a level where where people can appreciate, I, I I think the the business of banking is very misunderstood, including by a lot of financial commentators, not the least of which are on CNBC or other places saying, "Oh, the banks are great value." Right. Well, the now. thing that bothers me just at a personal level is when I hear some bankers talk to the Canadian population and say, "Well, don't take risks with your real estate." And look, I'm not trying to defend real estate here, but they're like, "Well, don't get overlevered. Don't you know? Be careful." Meanwhile, the interest rates are down at the like at the bottom, and the only hope for the middle class in Canada is really to get some assets because the assets are going to benefit. And here you are screaming that don't do anything silly with your real estate. Well, Meanwhile, you're in the position, you are in the position as the bank that you're trying to tell other people not to get into. And you're benefiting and getting ahead from it. That's, uh, that's what f- completely freaks me out. And I guess maybe because we're the children of immigrants into this country. And I love Canada. Our father's Croatian. Our mother's Scottish. I wouldn't exist for this if it wasn't for this country. We literally would not be born. Our parents met here oh, in okay. Toronto on Lakeshore at Palais Royale. Nice. The, the dance club there on Lakeshore Road. And uh, I, so I'm a big, huge fan of this country. So when I hear stuff like that... Yeah. It just kind of gets to it gets to my it gets to me deep. So, and can, the Canadian banking system on a global basis is is renowned for its uh, its great credit management, uh, you know, diversification. There's only six. Uh, well, let's let's say there's seven or eight uh, truly national banks in Canada. 
So I came from the U.S. and and I'm learning their banking system down there. Did you know that in the U.S. there were fifteen thousand banks? Wow, okay, I knew there were just, a ton because yeah. there's like every corner you turn, there's a new one. I'm like, so, I've never seen that right. one before. So what a totally different it? banking model. It, interstate banking was not allowed in the U.S. Uh, if, if for the longest time. Uh, you had the Glass-Steagall Act, all sorts of different uh, separation of commercial banking and investment banking. So the Canadian banks were w- really well set up uh, from a, a diversification uh, perspective. But when, when you looked at it, it doesn't change the model of banking, which is to lever yourself very highly. That's mm-hmm. banking. That is what Henry Ford said. I just looked mm-hmm. up some numbers about the when when uh, again when COVID hit. So at the end of uh, the end of March, I was just looking them up for something I was writing. At the end of March, the central bank had five hundred thirteen million dollars of mortgage bonds. So the Bank of Canada had five hundred thirteen million. By the end of June, that number was over seven. It was a seven and a half billion, seven and a half billion, thirteen hundred percent increase. So to your point about just showing them up through more debt. Right, because they had to take those off the books to so they could try to they could try to get more money out there. You correct. Right? So that's one way of monetizing. Um, but what it really again the the in my opinion, this is only Greg Foss's opinion. Uh, the reason that they did that is to uh, stop the uh, the hemorrhaging of credit spreads. Mm-hmm. Credit spreads actually drive everything uh, from lending prices to uh, equity. Okay, people don't understand that equity trading actually starts with credit. Mm-hmm. So I don't think many, I understand that. Okay, yeah. well, let, let, let's just start with a company, first of all, um, that has a market capital that, uh, that trades. Uh, you can pull up on any uh, equity uh, thread. You can see what the market cap of uh, a company XYZ is. But what you rarely get there is how much debt the company al- also has. So let's say you have a company that's uh, uh, a $2 billion market cap company. That sounds pretty exciting, um, oh, except... It. Yeah. What if they also have $8 billion of debt? Okay, so they have what's called an enterprise value of $10 billion. What part of the capital structure do you think actually wags the tail? Do you think it's the debt or the equity? The equity actually is an option in that case. And it's really the debt that wags the tail. Okay, so the equity gets flung around like a, you know, what the hell's happening? And then you actually realize, oh, the bond prices have changed and the bond traders are shorting the equity to hedge against their bond exposure. And the equity guys are like, why is all this equity for sale? And it's the bond guys, they're shorting the equity against their bond exposure because the bond guys, unless they get a hundred cents on the dollar back, the equities were zero. So what are you supposed to do? Yes, you're supposed to do smart trades like that. But the problem is a lot of the talking heads on Wall Street and Bay Street are only talking about the stock price and they have no idea what's really driving it. I had no idea until maybe the last few years the importance of the bond market. I always just kind of grew. I think because my entry point into the markets was the tech bubble. I was at Oracle 1998 and then 1999. I remember someone running up to me and saying, Tom, millionaire.com is about to go public. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? They're like, well, you know, th- that's the website where all millionaires are going to go. And I was literally like, really? So I don't know, maybe I should buy some. Wow. <laughs> like that was the whole business case. So like, do you remember that era? I, so I, I, do, I yep. didn't, I, you know, I didn't grow, I grew up in that or not grew up in that, but that was my first entry point to having some disposable income to put into the, to mm-hmm. the stock market. I completely ignored bonds. I'm like, what is that whole bond market thing? So, cause they don't get quoted in the newspaper. You don't see bond prices generally quoted in, uh, you know, on, on, uh, the internet or whatever. And then the whole advent of this new, uh, this new, um, uh, product called credit default swaps, which is truly, truly a beautiful invention. Uh, for managing risk, but it also turns into a uh, a speculative uh, product for uh, for a lot of people that want to bet on the demise of a company, uh, but not actually doing it through short sales of stock. They can do it via purchasing insurance on the company that, uh, you know, you have to pay a premium each year to get that insurance. But if the company actually uh, uh, files for uh uh, chapter 11 or CCAA in Canada, there's a, a, a payout that is many, many, many times higher than the premium. And it's, it's a, a different way of speculating or, or betting against the health of a company. 
again, the CDS market, the credit default swap market will drive equity prices of highly levered companies and people have no clue when they're buying the equity, what is actually driving the, uh, so with this context, you know, this kind of lifetime of experience at, at this point, with this context and you see the Bank of Canada this year, for the first time that I'm aware of, really seemed like they got actively engaged in our markets. And they were vague, like on the Bank of Canada's website, it's just like, we are intervening in some of our financial markets for the health of our system. Or what, It was like a vague thing. When you see that happening, what's running through your head? So it's, it, this happened the first time in 2008 and the Canadian banks were uh, 2008 driven by the subprime mortgage crisis in the US, uh, as well as uh, things called uh, CDO squareds and uh, all this uh, uh, basically alchemy that uh, the guys in the US are so good at putting together. But um, uh, credit default obligations and all these sorts of things are uh, levered bets on credit. And in 2008, again, the North American banking system was insolvent. Okay. The Canadian banks weren't because they did not have huge exposure to the subprime mortgage, uh, industry or levered bets on mortgage backed securities, etc. Uh, but what we did have in Canada, this is an aside, is a huge problem with asset backed commercial paper. And I, I'd love to go into that story at one point too. But, uh, in 2008, the North American banking system was uh, was in big trouble, and that's when the federal, uh, the, the Fed, the uh, Federal Reserve in the U.S. started their interventions into the credit markets. But the Bank of Canada did not have to do anything. Uh, it's only this time that the Bank of Canada did their first interventions into the credit And that's markets. what stood out to me, that it was this. I'm like, wow, in 2008, sure. we skated through that pretty right. cleanly. Right. And now this time, the Bank of Canada is getting so involved. So all other central banks or all other major cent central banks were doing it in 2008. Um, you know, the, the Euro, uh, the Feds. But um, uh, so the European Central Bank did their part on behalf of... Uh, uh, Deutsche Bank, for example, which is a very highly levered uh, global. I feel BMF. like Do Deutsche Bank's been on the verge of going under. I feel like for a day, ever since 2008, I feel like every year I see a story about Deutsche Bank not going to make it. Not going to make. Would, I would hate to be the one that uh, you know caused anybody to to panic. Um, but there's no question that Deutsche Bank has uh, has exceeded the uh, nine the, lives. The, well, well, not nine lives has exceeded the uh, normal risk uh, leverage guidelines of things like the bank for international settlements and whatnot. Um, there's different ways of taking leverage and, uh, and, and, and betting, you know, betting and Deutsche Bank was aggressive on, uh, on, on, on many of those fronts. So on Twitter, I saw you talk about Nick, were you going to say just something about, uh, gold and uh, you were talking about everyone. So many people listening to this are going to know the name Peter Schiff and, and that kind of stuff. We're, I've been a big gold guy for since Nick and I, since 2008, after the financial crisis, okay. we thought, okay, mm -hmm. we can't get our family. You don't know this, Greg, our family almost went completely bankrupt in 1990 when interest rates. Uh, went up in this 18, country. 18%. Yeah. 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 Our mm -hmm. father was flipping properties in Mississauga. Okay. He got caught with uh, three properties. Luckily sold two of them. One in Mississauga. Mississauga Road in Eglinton. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Price went, he bought something for seven fifty. Four months later, it went down to what we think was about four fifty. We were guessing because nothing was selling. Our, we, our family almost lost everything. Not mm -hmm. just that house, but our family home in Mississauga. We managed to hold on. His uh, construction company went through a deep recession. So then when 2000, so we managed to survive that as a family. So then when 2000, and eight hit and Nick and I had just gone into business for ourselves. We said, that's enough. We got to figure out this financial system more deeply than we know, much more deeply than just real estate, because we can't get caught off guard like this as a family repeatedly. Mm -hmm. That led us down the rabbit hole of, you know, the Federal Reserve and how money works, Beautiful. how the banking system works. It led us to really appreciate gold. And we thought, you know what, there is a place for gold in our lives. And even if everyone's going to make fun of it, this is a bit of hard money that we'll just kind of stash away here on the side. It's going to give our family a little bit of security. And, you know, we bought it in 2008, 9, 10, as it was going up in 2012, came kind of crashing okay. back down. We, we, we've been believers the whole time because okay. of the way we see the world setting up. And, uh, and then Bitcoin comes into our lives and we're like, whoa, wait a second. This looks like digital gold that a much kind of, it solves a lot of problems. You're not going to carry the coin in your pocket. You're not, you know, you can go across international borders with Bitcoin. It lives on the internet kind of thing. This is really worth, and it's hard money. It's set. And then someone like you um, with your background starts talking about Bitcoin too. And I see people from all over the place, you know, talking about this stuff. 
were you a gold fan before Bitcoin or did you just skip right over? I'm just curious. Did you skip Great right question. over and go like, okay, Bitcoin's the one. And if that's the case, why? Okay. Um, so there's a lot there. Um, so it, 27 years ago, I obviously was very concerned about this uh, yeah, Canadian found- banking system. <laughs> And uh, we, I we, said, we but, picked up on that. Yeah, but, yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. But I don't. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't have the solution. So I believe in gold, and I do have always owned gold in my portfolio. I believe oh, wow. a diversified portfolio should always own gold, uh, whether it's the physical physical gold or one of the ETFs or uh, gold miners. There's a there's a place in everybody's portfolio. So I'm going to jump to my conclusion. Is the same thing applies in my opinion to Bitcoin. Um, it happens to be the most exciting technology that I've experienced in the last 30 years. But that aside, um, I believe everybody should have exposure to Bitcoin because uh, having zero exposure to Bitcoin is actually more risky, in my opinion, than having a 1% to 3% portfolio weight. Okay? Yeah, I like the way you've summarized it in this tweet. So, yeah, thank you. That's uh, that, that was a good one. Um, can, can, do you want me to read it? Do you want me to uh, re- go ahead. Sure, sure. Yeah, so, so Greg has it here. He says, if Bitcoin has a 3% chance of going to $1 million a coin, as per Raul Pal, and I love his, we, we're big fans of his stuff, so well thought out, and a 97% chance of zero. So if it has a 3% chance of going to a million and a 97% chance of zero, the expected value of this binary distribution is $30,000 a coin. It is more risky to have zero exposure to Bitcoin than to have a one to three percent uh, than to have a one to three percent weight. So, ba- and then the last line is great. Fiat's are melting ice cubes, <laughs> sell dollars, buy Bitcoin. So you're basically saying at that analysis, it, it just makes practical sense to own one to three percent right. in in any kind so, of. Portfolio. So that was I I I laid it out a little uh, you know it's, it's a little elementary there um, in that I I picked a binary distribution meaning there's only two events that can happen a uh, a million dollar a coin or a zero but in reality it's a continuous distribution for anybody who's uh, statistics, statistically inclined which means the picture of the distribution is a uh, it's it's not two outcomes it's a uh, a continuous line of probabilities. Uh, but the f- interesting and the most beautiful part about Bitcoin that uh, attracts me is the asymmetric return. Um, Raul Paul is no uh, no slouch. Uh, when he says a million dollars, he's uh, I can I can defend it with various other uh, uh, metrics as well. Um, I actually think it could go substantially higher than a million dollars but you're not going to say stuff like that when currently it's trading at eleven thousand yeah it, sounds, it just doesn't it make sounds, any sense right so a little ridiculous so therefore you... you know i'm a i'm a guy of probabilities and i like to pray play probabilities um i tried to lay it out showing okay how about if we even said there's a 99 percent chance it goes to zero and a one percent chance it goes to a million dollars well, the expected value of that is $10,000 a coin, meaning right now it's at that price. You're supposed to either hold it or, you know, but what's the chance that the real probability distribution is much more, uh, in my opinion, much more weighted towards a very uh, positive outcome for holders. So then again, you say anyone who says they are 100% certain that Bitcoin is going to zero is probably not living in the real world nobody can be a hundred percent certain about pretty well any investment okay and if they are a hundred percent certain about that investment then there's got to be zero risk involved okay so bitcoin is not that bitcoin is a uh an asymmetric return opportunity for people that uh that need to hedge against some of the some of the systemic risks in the system like banking uh, you know, it belongs there with real estate. It is a hard asset. Are you going to put a hundred percent of your uh, net worth into, uh, into Bitcoin? There are people that do. Um, well, the more I, you I'm go down the, person. no, but the more you go down the rabbit hole and, and Nick's going to, you know, laugh at this because the more we both read on this stuff and I'll be running over to Nick talk if it's Saifedean's book mm-hmm. or Jeff Booth. I don't know if you know, love him. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. You, the more, and then someone like yourself, you, you know, you take your stories, Greg. You hear what Jeff says. So mm-hmm. your story is about the banking system. Then you hear Jeff's story is about technology and mm-hmm. its impact and p- p- uh, potential deflationary kind of pressure that it's putting. 
putting on the economy. Then you read Seyfedin's excellent explanation. His first 72 pages of that book where he outlines the history of money, mm-hmm. to me, is gold. Like it it's is. a brilliant analysis yep. of the of the historical uh, of our economy. So you have all these different people coming at it from different angles. Correct. And then you have Raul Paul, like, you know, started the hedge fund so industry. So he's, he's a macro, he's a global mm-hmm. macro guy. And that guy really understands risk, uh, you know, risk and return. And, and that's what global macro guys are so good at. Um, is taking uh, favorable, uh, I'm going to use the term bets, but taking favorable investments that offer asymmetric return outcomes. And that's what Bitcoin is, okay? I'm going to tell you why it can go to a million dollars very simply. Um, How many of your listeners know what the total value of all financial assets are in the world? Probably no. like 95%. Let me take a guess. <laughs> Let me take a guess. Debt is like we're, we got to be $270 trillion in debt globally right okay. now. Is that right? That's a real right. estate, I think, is worth. I don't know if you're going to roll that I, in. Roll, real estate real is estate included. Real estate, I think, there. is like $240 trillion. You're, you're, you're right on the right spot. So let, let's okay. get to the, the conclusion. It's about nine. Tom, nine. Tom, Tom just wanted to show how smart he is. No, no, I love it's, this it's stuff. Beautiful. I just okay, love Okay, so this stuff. is perfect, right? So, so there's $900 trillion. U.S. dollars. So converting everything to U.S. dollars, there's $900 trillion. And that was before the Fed uh, got crazed. But uh, uh, $900 trillion. So let's just say you play probabilities and you say, is it possible that Bitcoin could get 5% of that market? Yeah, you, I don't think it's crazy. Okay, we take, okay so, so let's do the math. Nine, $900 trillion times 5% is $45 trillion. Oh my God! You're right. I, trillion. I, I was going to say four and a half trillion. No, forty-five trillion. Okay, and there's twenty-one million bitcoins hard capped. So let's do the math. Forty-five divided by twenty-one. Oh, that's two and change. That's two and change a million dollars mm-hmm. that each bitcoin can go mm-hmm. under that scenario. Is it a hundred percent certain? Absolutely not. No, but you but can use it a, in your analysis. Put a probability on that. Okay, and just say, okay, well, what if it's only two percent? We'll do the same math at two percent. And you're almost at a million dollars a coin. Okay, so it's not out of the realm of possibilities. That's all I'm saying. And again, with all the things that could have happened, I was on Bitcoin train back in 2016. All that COVID has done is accelerated my concern over the uh, over the global financial system. Yeah, I like the way you break it up because I think the way Nick and I often talk about it is just the central banks are pushing so much new money into the system that... Some, you know, kind of more the inflation theory, like, Mm -hmm. hey, some of this will eventually, the velocity will likely pick up if they send enough checks out there and some of it will get out. And I've always been thinking of it that way, but your way is just mathematically a little nicer, right? It's cleaner. Like here's the probability. We don't have to worry about things like velocity of money. This is just what the total amount, it's like, imagine you were in charge of all the assets in the world, including real estate. Imagine you were, and that's a $900 trillion business. Um, would you, you know, is it crazy to think that the most advanced form of hard money could capture 5% of that market? And in my opinion, it's not. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's right. And, and, and like you said, I, I've seen, uh, for me personally, this year, things that I thought would take longer to play out, it's just the speed at which you were seeing them happen is it's kind of freaking me out a little bit. But uh, I'm, but I'm also so. Tom is more bullish on. He's always been more of a, a bullish on gold. Sometimes my like investing that. timeline is too quick, like compared to the real world. Like I'll have these ideas that don't kind well, of evolve for. I just think that I, th- I, you know, it's just me. I just think because I, I don't think the central banks want it. You know, want the funds directed towards there because they don't have the control over it as they do in other things. And I'm just in my head, and I don't know what the answer is, but I'm just like, man, how many more bullets do they have up their sleeves? Because you know, I didn't thought some things like this might happen years ago yep. and it hasn't. And even since 2008 till now, they've kind of held it together. Now these mm-hmm. things have sped up. So, so when's it, when's so it, you a know, spiral, when's it, a spiral will accelerate. Um, and that's what we're in. We're in a debt spiral. It's mathematically impossible to get out of that debt spiral mm-hmm. right now, unless inflation picks up to over 10%. Cause okay? you're saying you, we're not going to be able to grow our way out of this bingo. Like you get it right. A debt to GDP spiral is uh, basically measuring your total value of your economy as a function of how much debt you have in your... And don't forget, you need to pay an interest coupon on that debt. That's what everyone forgets, okay? So compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world, except when you have to pay it. 
No, I know. Okay, and that's that's really it you know freaks, taxing. When yeah. I hear the government, like I hear Trudeau mm. talking about, well, the, the, you know, yeah, we have all this debt and we're spending all this money, but you know what? It's fine because interest rates are so low right now, so it's okay. So it wrong. Freaks so me wrong. out when I hear so, so wrong. A lack of understanding. So it's, basic. It's yeah. what we. It's what we might expect from a, uh, you know, a politician that. that doesn't get it. Well, no, no, he gets it. Perhaps he gets that he should say these things to stay in in power for another four years. But he also perhaps does not understand pure mathematics, and uh, you know, debt to equity, debt to GDP. Don't forget, debt to GDP is like measuring a company's leverage as debt to sales. We don't measure a company's leverage as debt to sales we actually measure a company's leverage as debt to ebitda or debt to cash flow if we measured the canadian government's debt to cash flow <laughs> it would be a triple c rated credit and i'm not kidding unless the only reason that the federal government is triple a rated now triple a minus uh is because it can print money otherwise it would be triple c I'm not kidding. So it's the strength of the taxpayer that resides not in this even, country. It's not even about the taxpayer again. The taxpayer can't do it. It's over. The debt to GDP spiral is assured. Mm -hmm. The only reason they maintain their AAA credit rating is because they can print money. Full stop. So why? Yeah. So why? That's just, yeah, yeah, that yeah. statement. No, I want, I want, I want Greg to pick apart our three buckets here a little bit in a second. But I, I, you know, why then did you? What is it with uh, with Schiff when he's talking about gold? Um, you're just thinking Bitcoin has the higher ob its probability of a of a higher price so, is exceeding gold, so and I that's why you're, you're trying you, to. Educate. You guys are you guys are really on top of the ball. So you guys know what the market. Cap. We take all compliments, Greg. So you just keep feeding. <laughs> well, the here's the thing. So so your listeners already know, I think, what the market cap of gold is. So they're the market value of physical gold. It's about ten trillion dollars. Okay, guys, ladies, and guys. Um, so you do that and you say, if, if physical gold is 10 trillion, is it crazy to think that Bitcoin could get to a $10 trillion market cap? Remember the other example we gave is a 45 trillion. Well, even at $10 trillion, I don't think it's crazy. Uh, you take $10 trillion and you divide it by 21 million, which is the fixed supply of Bitcoin. And again, you get close to $500,000 of Bitcoin. These numbers are so crazy that with something trading at $11,500, yeah. it's hard to go out and pitch people it, it, on these numbers. It's hard to believe that. Yeah. So then you just have to bring a probability analysis in. And someone says, I'm 100% certain Bitcoin's going to go bankrupt. And I go, how about you just give me 3% that it's not going? And I'll give you 97% chance it does and hence my comment that it's worth 30,000 bucks a coin right now. And if it's worth $30,000 and it's trading at 11,000, what are you supposed to do? No, okay. And, and then when you see things like Fidelity, I think in July, uh -huh. say, hey, we're going to apply with the SEC uh -huh. to have you know, a fund. I know uh -huh. you're, you've been, we didn't even talk, we have so much to talk. We didn't, we're going to run out of time. We, there's, we want to talk about some of the stuff that you're okay. involved in. But uh -huh. when you see some of, you know, the established players, uh -huh start to throw these names around. Do you think one of the attacks against Bitcoin that the government will make it illegal, kind of the, the probability of that begins to decrease? No question. Fidelity is a big player. No question. So so there's a number of things working in our favor there. The fact that the U.S. government has, uh, has auctioned off uh, confiscated coins uh, you know, to, 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 does two things. It, uh, yeah, it have they, I don't that know that. So they, they, oh yeah. So they confiscated coins from things like Silk Road and, uh, you know, the drug, and they auctioned, uh, them off? And they auctioned them off to buyers. One of the largest buyers is, uh, uh, uh Draper there in the U S. Um, and oh, I didn't he, know he's that. a beautiful, beautiful guy. Uh, he, he put a bid in at the auction, but the fact that the treasury auctioned this off sort of means it's legal currency in my opinion. And secondly, if they turn around and they, uh, they try and ban it, which another technically uh, banning Bitcoin, in my opinion, is uh, is is almost impossible. If you want to shut down the internet and uh, and and you know shut down Amazon and everything, all other companies do on the internet, we'll go ahead. We ordered to... a node, by the way. I'm going to be running Good. a node here. So just to... this is all cool. Um, let me but, tell but you, right there for a second, and I'm just going to play devil's advocate mm -hmm. for a second. So in Lebanon and Turkey right yep. now, and in those types of places, mm -hmm. they have been trying their best to not allow people to. Get, get into exchanges to be able to convert any any available funds isn't that awful but it's just yeah but i don't think to, to your point because that's what people say is you can but i think there, there's always workarounds like the people that understand technology or there's so they, they have satellites right segments. there's yeah. satellites so and, they, and all these guys look i i will tell you that i have having lived in the u.s and worked in the u.s um and i love canada like you guys uh but i love what the u.s stands for generally uh generally 
I will say that, uh, you know, they are pro-capitalism like I've never seen before. And unless you live down there and work down there, you don't understand. You don't feel it. it. You don't quite feel it like you do. Uh, You know, it's harder to get that feeling in Canada. Um, Bitcoin is something that could honestly change lives of millions of people and typically those people are not going to be the top one percent okay these are going to be people that are in the bottom like that are in those countries or like in venezuela's of the world so look you've seen pictures of garbage on the side of the road in venezuela garbage bags that are packed with fiat currency right it's just garbage they don't even can't even buy a loaf of bread it's fire starter with it's it's brutal. It's it's actually very 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 sad, but it is what happens when uh, you know excessive money printing uh, uh, takes control. There are a hundred and eighty something odd countries in the world that have fiat currencies. There will be more than a hundred fiat currencies that fail before the U.S. dollar has to worry about failing. You know, I never thought about it that but, way. But yeah. ultimately, as Voltaire said, all fiat currencies fail. It, it's just. It, what happens is, as uh, in the white paper, which is a beautiful uh, Satoshi's white paper, he says you have to trust the central bank not to print money to debase our our money. Some, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, uh, not to debase our money. But then again, who can you tr- can you trust them not to do that? Because over the years, they have continuously, continuously be betrayed that trust. Yeah, you make pretty strong points. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And, and you know the black market thing. It's funny you, you we we brought that up, Nick, and you brought that up. Our you don't know this about us, but our and our family lived through Yugoslavia the okay. war there, okay. and they lived through hyperinflation. At the end of that, uh, one of our aunts, this would be Teta Vera, told me that she went to the bank and they wouldn't even count her currency. They just had a little plexiglass box. And they just said, stuff it in. Wow. And when it was full, they closed yeah. the lid and she that got like so $5 yeah. of the new currency. And they didn't care what and the it, denominations were. They didn't care about the denominations at all. And that's always stuck with me. And our aunt who was selling eggs in the market on the black market, she was taking people's dinars and selling German marks back mm-hmm. then because people were trying to get out of the dinars as it was losing value. She actually went to jail for two months and our so, uncle got her out of jail. So when the black, to me, the black market is more a representation of the real value. Even though it might be always, re- always, it always is. is. It always and, is. And, guys. And, and, and if you can get in now, let's say that was a fear. As long as you get through the exchanges now and pull some Bitcoin for yourself, if you have it under your own control in your own hardware wallet or whatever, you're good because then Nick and I can send it to each other. Perfect. And, you, you know, like you yeah. sent it to your guy you there just, in Australia. You just right? send me yours. That's, I'm not sending you anything. <laughs> you guys both send me yours. That's well, how we're going to do it. But see, that, and that's the beauty. Here's the funny thing. I'll play devil's advocate. The fact that we can even contemplate or joke about doing that is such a beautiful thing. No middleman, no control. Freedom. Uh, it's freedom, uh, separation, again, of uh, state and money. Um, and that's very, very important. I love I love uh, Canada. There's a certain level of governance that's uh, required uh, for a fully functioning society. No question, taxation is a must. But right now you're seeing people say, well, if you can just print money, why do we even pay taxes? And I don't have a good answer for that. I honestly don't. And David Rosenberg, who uh, is one of Canada's most uh, outstanding economists, asked the same question the other day. Did he? He, I, it I wasn't even the that. other day. It was like four, probably four months ago. I've been trying to get Rosie to uh, embrace Bitcoin. Um, I don't know him very well, but my brothers worked with him on, on Bay Street and uh, know a lot of guys that know him. Uh, Rosie, I don't suppose you're uh, listening to this, but brother, I would love to sit down and talk to you about Bitcoin because, again, it can it benefits the generally the bottom uh, the bottom 95% of, of uh, civilization rather than the top 5%, okay? I, yeah, like could, all these crazy financial instruments that are running the markets now, like when credit default swaps, the mm-hmm. average end user that's investing in the markets, they're not playing in that game at all. They don't, so they, they can't so take the benefit that's of the true. risk, right? That, that being said, though, that's a professional's game. Uh, you need special things like is, does, you have to be a financial institution almost to, to play in the, in the credit default swap market. But again, it's, it's, you know, you get the guys at Robinhood that are buying bonds of Hertz Corporation yeah. just because it's, it's really cheap. Guys, I'm so sad. I'm so sad. Like, and then you get a, a reporter, at, a Bloomberg reporter that has no clue about the capital structure of the company saying, well, it's cheap because, uh, you know, maybe they're playing the fact that, uh, that Hertz can recover. No, guys, the bonds were trading <laughs> Sorry, at 50 me. cents on the dollar. Unless the bonds are at 100 cents on the dollar, that equity has zero value except for optionality. And by the way, if it's at 50 cents on the dollar, that option 
is not even valuable. Yet people paid, you know, $16 a share for Hertz stock. Really, really sad. Doesn't mean that markets can't go up and down based on supply and demand, but on fundamental analysis, it's uh, it's it's very important to understand the math. I, w- I want to talk about some stuff sure. here in Toronto, sure. but but before I do that, do you, are some of the your established guys for that you worked with, like some of the establishment coming into Bitcoin? Do you think? Sure. That you, yeah. You, you see it a little bit. Um, you know, ki- I get a, I got a lot of. Uh, I get a lot of uh, jabs because uh, so because your buddies you used to work with. Well, here, here's the thing, right? I so t- 27 years ago, after I worked at Royal Bank of Canada, I moved to Toronto because I wanted to start high yield bonds. There was no high yield bond market in Canada. Did everyone know? I'm certain that people didn't know this. Did you know? Well, not did you know? I'm going to tell you that Ted Rogers, president of Rogers Communications, owned a lot of land in Mississauga. Okay, he may have, <laughs> but he was also the largest high yield bond borrower in the world. Not in Canada, in the no, world. I have no idea. Okay, his plant, his cable and wireless plant was world class. Okay, it had uh, about a value of four billion dollars, if I remember correctly. This was a long time ago, and all that money was borrowed in the U.S. Okay, so Ted Rogers' capital structure had about four billion dollars of debt, and all of that money was uh, the in the public was borrowed out of the U.S. high yield market. And the Canadian banks had exposure to Mr. Rogers as well, but they had it on a uh, on a uh, uh, senior level. So the bonds were high yield. The Canadian bank debt was, uh, was probably rated triple B or low investment grade. At the end of the day, Mr. Rogers had the largest high yield bond balance outstanding in the world. No Canadians owned his bonds, but they owned the equity of Rogers Communications because it was in the TSX 60, okay? It paid no dividend, and I worked at TD Securities, and we brought the first Canadian high-yield bond deal for Ted Rogers. So I said, well, who's a natural buyer for this? And uh, I said, well, obviously someone who owns a bunch of Rogers Communications equity. They, they must believe in the, in the sustainability of the business model and the... Uh, and the ability for uh, Rogers to uh, cash flows to uh, to exceed their interest payments. So, I hit the key on the on the on the turret for the the bond trading for the this account who shall remain nameless. But uh, they owned nine hundred million dollars of Rogers Communications equity. Okay, one account owned nine hundred million dollars of Rogers Communications equity. So I said, hey, Mr. Account XYZ, you obviously believe in Rogers Communications. We're bringing a bond deal for uh, Rogers. It's going to have a 12 coupon on it. And uh, I'd like you to consider buying some. And they said, we can't buy it. It's a junk bond. And I said, well, okay. So pejoratives aside, the bond may be junk, but what does that make your equity? Super junk? And, you know, there's silence on the other end of the phone. So I said, here's a trade for you. Why don't you sell some of your equity, which, which is lower in the capital structure, treat the coupon on the bond like the dividend you're not getting on the common stock, and you've actually reduced risk by buying a high yield bond. That should make sense, shouldn't it? Uh, I can't do it. Why? Why can't you do it? Because I'd have to report to my investment committee that I own a junk bond. So I said, okay, this sounds really weird. How about this? How about give me a price you will buy it at, i.e. give me a coupon you will buy it. And they said, there's no coupon. I said, what do you mean? I said, what if I gave you these bonds? They said, we would not take them. Wow. And I said, you are the stupidest account yeah. that I've ever met <laughs> yeah, in my Yeah, where were they entire... coming from? Just the equity to them? Well, they was just had their rules. In equity, in equity, you're allowed to swing for the fences and trees grow to the moon. But like if the you're... Bo- if you're like the bond on the decisions. same company is a junk bond because yeah. a corporate bond. That's a little it's, just there's policy decisions people aren't thinking. That's right. Just following Isn't that crazy? They own $900 million. It's and insane. they won't That's they insane. they won't take a bond if I gave it to them because they'd have to report it to their investment committee. Nick Nick has to jump on a okay. on a two okay. uh, two o'clock call, but uh, okay. G- Greg, I I wanted to, uh, yeah, you. I feel like you have so many of these stories. It's crazy. Well, um, it's important to it's important for people to understand because this is what finance is. It's it's about uh, teaching people options uh, to hedge risk and to uh, to understand risk and return. What you when I first reached out to you, it was because of the company. Um, three IQ, yeah. I believe. Mm-hmm. What what did they go? Can you tell me a little bit? About, sure. So three, I feel like since I've checked you, I got to you know. You, there's the pubs in Montreal. Sure. We'll, we'll go to the pubs. I, I want to talk about the energy yeah, company, yeah, yeah. and I'll, I'll talk about three IQ, and then we'll wrap it up. Three IQ Corp, uh, very uh, smart uh, 
concept by a gentleman out of Montreal, uh, Fred Pye. Uh, we wanted basically to ex- to allow Canadians to gain exposure to Bitcoin via a registered uh, or listed exchange uh, f- traded fund. It's not an ETF. It's actually a closed end fund, but you can actually put Bitcoin in your RRSP and tax advantage funds. This is a great way to invest in Bitcoin. I've never heard of it. Yeah. So, so Bitcoin, you know, everybody should have exposure. If you're going to have exposure, you might, you might as well put it in a, into an account where the government pays half of it up front. And then, you know, you just get, uh, you, when you withdraw your, uh, your contributions, uh, later in life, then you get taxed. So it's a tax deferred account. Uh, you can put your, um, you can put your uh, Bitcoin exposure. It's a hundred percent Bitcoin exposure. It trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange. The symbol is QBTC.U. And and the exchange who who had to get approved. So did? we had to fight the OSC yeah, tooth and it was nail. Was the OSC? Okay. We had to fight the OSC tooth and nail. Hats off to a gentleman by the name of Sean Cumby, who is the CIO of Three uh, IQ, that uh, won in court. We took the three. We took the OSC to court to win this. Yeah, good for you guys. Wow. Yeah, so, and when it, when did this start? Because I had literally never heard about okay, this. Okay, so... Uh, it, it this year? Correct. It was launched in March of this year. Oh, March of this mm-hmm. year. It's that new. That's right. Because a, f- a whole bunch of people have been asking me, hey, Tom, I would get some Bitcoin, but I'd like to do it inside it's, my... R- it's so much easier, right? It's in your RSP. It's, uh, we take care of uh, cust- custody. We take care of... Uh, uh, you know, uh, and it's really buying the Bitcoin because I know that's the next question I'm going to be 100% asked. 100% exposure to Bitcoin. Wow. Okay. Um, we'll put a link to 3IQ Corp in the show notes Thank of this episode. Much. So yep. that, yeah, if you're mm-hmm. driving or listening to this, and you, don't worry, go to rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash podcast, find, find Greg Foss's episode here, and we'll have that link there. Um, but then but then when I went back to check on you, you had changed some stuff. And you're, th- what's going on in the energy play here? So, what, what are you up to? Uh, thank you for uh, noticing. Um, my final pitch on Bitcoin is the following. Um, a lot of people... Uh, think of bit of Bitcoin or are being sold Bitcoin as it being digital gold, and I, I I agree with that analogy. It's a store of value, much like gold is. But more exciting, in my opinion, is the fact that Bitcoin is actually digital energy. Okay, to mine Bitcoin, and we could get into the technicalities of it. You need a tremendous amount of uh, of electricity to show proof of work. Uh, it's basically what keeps the world's uh, largest computer and most powerful computer system uh, hack proof. Um, so Bitcoin, in my opinion, is actually digital electricity or taking it one step higher digital energy. I firmly believe that in the future, energy, including oil, will be priced in Bitcoin. And imagine what that means. It means that Russia doesn't have to worry about getting paid in euro. US well, they don't even want U.S. dollars anymore. They're going through, they're getting paid in euros. And Saudi Arabia is not going to have to worry about hedging their U.S. dollars and being uh, subservient to, uh, to, to the almighty U.S. dollar because if it's in Bitcoin, it becomes the global reserve currency. And think of how logical that is. If it takes it, it so sounds much. Cra- it, like it's one of those things that when you say it sounds mm-hmm. today in 2020 sounds crazy. Except but, with, when you think about it, it is digital electricity. It has basically taken mining hash power and putting it, put it into the value of a Bitcoin. Yeah, it's a representation of the energy used that to create correct. it. And we happen to call it in US dollars or Canadian dollars, what, yeah. whatever. But I can see what you're, where you're coming from, that it's a representation of the energy used to create it. Correct. And it's a logical extension of, of this, uh, this whole argument I've made. So I've joined a company uh, by the name of Validus Power. It's a private company based in Toronto. Um, and I'm going to make it one step further. It's run by an individual who's actually Indigenous Canadian. And uh, I foresee the day that uh, perhaps the Indigenous community in Canada will adopt Bitcoin as their, uh, as their wow, currency. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, they yeah. own so much. They own so much. Uh, they, by the way, they own all the headwaters of all the electrical uh, 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 hydro electric plants or dams in, so in they Canada. Very well might listen, benefit. listen, it's a no brainer. <laughs> it's a no brainer. And they're trying to do the same so thing. So this company, is this one of those where you're putting like an energy plant on one, like an existing energy? It, for example, we could put it on, on stranded gas in, yeah, in, okay, in, that's in, what, in, thank in you. That's stranded gas out in, uh, in Alberta. This could turn, there's a very 
smart individual in the U.S. called Robert Breedlove and Marty Bent, uh, two real Bitcoin maxis who uh, believe that energy companies could become the banks of the future. And if that, in fact, is the case, we have a huge, huge obligation to Western Canada to advance that platform in Canada, uh, not just all for our, all my Alberta friends right now. And we have some if they're listening to this, listen, they're just listen, cheering up listen, and down. Because honestly, if you're flaring gas and it's going into the atmosphere and not being used to power a turbine that can create Bitcoin through the mining process. You're just wasting. That so you're thinking about taking the extra energy production that's not being captured right now. It's throwing, one of the options. Throwing one of these like a, yeah. like a mining plant on Correct. it. Correct. You you would take a turbine. Bitcoin. You would take a a gas powered turbine, thirty five megawatt gas powered turbine, and uh, you could hook it up to uh, you know ten thousand uh, mining rigs and uh, start producing some listen. Bitcoin. You've gone. Listen, we started at the Bloomberg Terminal. Yeah. You know that. Yes. Actually, we started before that. We were talking about the books you were looking sure, through, about sure, the sure. Bloomberg Terminal yeah. to where the U.S. dollar could be replaced by Bitcoin as a, as a, a possible reserve asset. What you love, you know, you love the U.S. as as you know, and obviously a, a Canada. Maybe it's a selfish thing in me. I want the U.S. to do well because we're their neighbors, and you know the way the U.S. We goes, have to, guys. we, we go. Have to, yeah. um, but but what does that do to the U.S.? You and I guess you're gonna. I'm, I'm anticipating the response. They're entrepreneurial enough that you think they'll adapt. But but the loss of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency is a big blow, guys. It won't happen overnight. And honestly, um, there will be a lot of iterations in this. The central banks of the world that are surviving uh, will come out with their own digital currencies. There's good things and bad things about that. Again, it will be digital fiat. It will not be digital Bitcoin with a cap supply because you cannot cap the fiat. We're in the debt spiral right now. Debt, D-E-B-T, not death. But <laughs> the, 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 the point is uh, there will be a lot of iterations in that. And again, lots of countries' fiat's will fail before the U.S. does and, and loses reserve currency status. There will be a, a power struggle. Um, perhaps it's not Bitcoin that, uh, that wins out, but Bitcoin has a 12-year lead. The Lindy effect is in full force. It currently has a market cap of about $225 billion, which places it in the top 25 of companies in the S&P 500. So it's a big, it's, it's a real deal right now, guys. This is $225 billion that can go up still another hundred to 1000 times from here. So I'm a, I'm pumped to be part of Validus Power. I'm pumped to be on this podcast. This is the first time, the first one I've done for Bitcoin. So thank you very much uh, for having me. And uh, Greg, let's share your Twitter handle here. Sure. Uh, yeah. What is it? At Foss? Foss, Greg Foss. Foss, Greg Foss. So yeah. it's, your, it's your last name twice. F-O-S-S, -S, yeah. Greg and then F-O-S-S -S again. That's correct. And Anyone they, listening, say hi to Greg on Twitter. If you're saying, if you're, if you're I, on I, Twitter, say please, hi to Greg. Please, I, I, I would love to hear from you guys. And, um, and you know, I picked that, that handle uh, in 2016 and I hadn't started using Twitter until 2020. So I perhaps would have picked something else, but... Uh, uh, it was what they suggested I pick. In, it's uh, part of in you. Like the Leafs are part of me. Good. It's part of you now. That handle I love, is part I of love, you. I love Twitter. I love the, the things I've learned on Twitter and I love the people I've met you're on meeting Twitter. Some, so. you're, you're meeting some great great guys on there. And you know what? Thanks for sharing. Listen, it's a two-way street. Thanks for coming on here mm -hmm. and sharing some of your story because what you're giving to some of our audience is context that they never had and some of the inner workings about the banking system that yeah. we Nick and I can talk about, Good. but you lived. So I lived it and, and I don't want to scare anybody, right? I mean, uh, look, these banks, uh, these banks are tremendous institutions. They just happen to work on a model that uses a lot of leverage and mathematics. You can't change mathematics. Uh, that's what I love about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is math and code. Uh, I love both of those. I'm, I'm somewhat dangerous as a coder, but, uh, nowhere near as much, as well as I understand math when it comes right down to it. Uh, you know, we have painted ourselves in a corner and Bitcoin is the solution. Greg, thank you so much. It's been man. a pleasure. I really appreciate it. It's been, been a, this. been a real you. pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, everybody. So hopefully you enjoyed that chat. If you're not following Greg on Twitter yet, please do so at Foss, Greg Foss on Twitter. That's at Foss, F-O-S-S, Greg, G-R-E-G, Foss, F-O-S-S on Twitter. So at Foss, Greg Foss on Twitter. 
Tell him that you heard him here and you say hi. I'm sure he'll enjoy that. If you have any questions for that he's, uh, about Greg, he seems to engage pretty regularly there on, on Twitter. Absolutely great, great guy. Greg, thanks again for coming on. And if you are listening to this and you want to learn more about the membership, you can go to www.rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. So that's the membership that we run here. We've run for 13 years to help real estate investors right across the GTA and Golden Horseshoe. You can learn about all the benefits that you get as a Rockstar Inner Circle member by visiting www.rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. That's it for now. Until next time, your life, your terms. <laughs>